The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, in a moment, I'll, I'll introduce uh, Lee Brasington, who's our guest speaker today. Uh, before that, I want to uh, mention that we're in the middle now, or just the beginning, in a sense, of uh, this current round of fundraising for our retreat center. It's very exciting because tomorrow is when the contractors come in and actually start working and doing the renovation. And it'll be six months. They're, they're insisting they'll be done in six months. Um, but, you know. <laughs> and so we're still uh, needing to fundraise to really finish the, complete the project. And yesterday we had a fundraising event here that was quite nice. And one of the things that was very nice about it was the uh, wonderful uh, goodwill that uh, we have as a community and uh, that extends not only here supporting this IMC and supporting the retreat center efforts, but also uh, it's very clear that goodwill spread, uh, you know, is something that spreads out all across the country and around the world and people who are supporting us. So the next phase of this fundraising uh, effort is we're now going to have a, we're now having for the next three weeks an online auction. And uh, people from all over the world, this extended community and local community, have donated all kinds of things, artwork and uh, personal services of all kinds of different types, um, computer software of high-end high quality. There's um, uh, Buddhist art, some beautiful Buddhist art and, uh, that uh, some people offered um, paintings of different kinds. There's uh, opportunity to, to <clears throat> auction for lunch with Jack Cornfield. When he heard about our efforts, he thought, I can, do, I can offer lunch. And so if you'd like to have... And also, if you want to have lunch with me, I thought, <laughs> I thought that uh, if Jack can do it, then I could maybe. <laughs> and so, um, so anyway, it's a whole online thing. You go to our website, and you can uh, click on it, and uh, it tells you about the, the online auction and all that. It's like 80, 90 uh, items that are available there. Also, if you have friends you want to tell about the auction, there's so many items. We're surprised by how much good quality stuff we got. And our community isn't that big. So we want you to, we want to have competition for you <laughs> so that uh, you don't end up paying too little. So tell all your friends to look at it and compete with you and things like that. So uh, it's a pleasure to have Lee Brasington. It's not so usual anymore to have him coming through the Bay Area. He used to live here. And uh, he's one of the great teachers in our extended community. He's also a very good friend and a fellow practitioner and a colleague in teaching. Uh, his, uh, his, uh, he has a variety of strengths as, as a practitioner. Certainly one is a scholar. He studied the suttas very deeply. And he's also one of the people who's kind of really the forefront of bringing jhana practice into uh, the West. His, his teacher is Ayakema, a uh, German uh, nun, Buddhist nun, who did a lot of work in really kind of pioneering the teachings of, and the practice of jhana, a concentration practice here uh, for the West. And Lee is one of her leading disciples. And it's a quite a privilege to have you here, Lee. And uh, thank you for coming, being willing to talk on short notice. I asked him last night at 10 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> at 10 o'clock. <laughs> thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, I guess I'm your first April Fool's joke. You were expecting to hear Gil, and here I am sitting here. Uh, it was a surprise for me as well. Uh, what I thought I would do today is share with you what I think is the essence of the training 
that the Buddha taught. It goes by the name the gradual training or occasionally the graduated training. The Buddha said that his teaching was like the great ocean. First you walk in and you get your ankles wet and then your knees and your waist and finally you're fully submerged in the ocean. And this is exactly the sort of training that he gave. You start with the easy parts and work deeper. Now this is a training for the monks and nuns. The training for lay people was a bit different. It started with generosity. The training for the monks and nuns, well, there are three aspects of it. Sila, Samadhi, Panya. Morality, concentration, and wisdom. What I'm going to do is tell you a sutta, and your job is to pick out the morality, the concentration, and the wisdom aspects as we go along. There won't be a quiz, except, of course, you don't get enlightened unless you manage to pick this out. So, pay attention. The sutta that I think best exemplifies the gradual training is the Samanyapala Sutta, the Discourse on the Fruits of the Spiritual Life. This can be found in the Long Discourses, the Digha Nikaya, and it's sutta number two. Now, I'm going to give you my version of the sutta. I would suggest when you go home, you read the real version. You can find a real version for free on the access to insight.org website. Or if you have Maurice Walsh's translation of the Digha Nikaya, it's the second sutta there. Thus have I heard. Once the Buddha was living in Jivaka's mango grove near the city of Rajagaha with 1,250 monks. Now Jivaka, who had given the mango grove to the Buddha, was the royal physician in the court of King Ajatasattu. And on the night that our sutta takes place, it was a full moon night. And King Ajatasattu was sitting on the upper terrace of his palace, surrounded by his ministers and other members of the court. When the full moon rose, he uttered a joyful exclamation. Oh, what a beautiful night. Oh, what a wondrous night. Oh, what an auspicious night. Perhaps we could visit some recluse or Brahmin who could bring some peace to my mind. You see, King Ajatasattu had a very unpeaceful mind. This was because he had killed his father, good King Bimbasara. King Bimbasara was one of the Buddha's very first patrons. He actually encountered Siddhartha Gotama before he became the Buddha. And the story is that King Bimbasara was looking down from his palace and saw this recluse on alms round down in the streets below, and he was seemingly somewhat different from the average recluse. He seemed to have a regal bearing. So King Bimbasara said to one of his ministers, eh, follow that recluse, see where he goes. And so the minister followed Siddhartha Gotama to his place where he was hanging out on Vulture Peak, which is a mountain outside of Rajagaha. So King Bimbasara went to see Siddhartha Gotama, was very impressed with him after learning his story, and offered him a ministerial position in the court of 
the kingdom of Magadha. But Siddhartha Gautama wanted to know what to do about old age, sickness, and death. He wasn't interested in being a minister, so he politely refused. But King Bimbisara got him to promise that if he figured it out, he'd come back and tell him. <laughs> and indeed, about three years after his enlightenment, the Buddha showed up back in Rajagaha and gave a discourse to King Bimbisara, who was established in the fruit of stream entry, the first stage of enlightenment, and became one of the Buddha's earliest supporters. But King Bimbisara had a son, Prince Ajitasattu, who was, shall we say, rather ambitious. He grew weary of waiting for his father to die so he could become king and decided to take matters into his own hands. He snuck into his father's private quarters with a dagger strapped to his thigh and was promptly apprehended by the guards, who hauled him up before the king and said, we caught your son sneaking into your private quarters with this dagger strapped to his thigh. Son, why were you sneaking into my private quarters with a dagger strapped to your thigh? It's going to kill you, Dad. Why do you want to kill me? I want your kingdom. Why didn't you just say so? Here, you can be king. I mean, King Bimbisara was quite happy because this meant he could go practice full time. So Prince Ajitasattu got to be King Ajitasattu and didn't even have to kill his father. Except he grew worried that his father was going to get bored with his meditation stuff and had him thrown in the dungeon. He couldn't really bring himself to have him executed. He just cut off all his food. He did allow one visitor, the queen. The queen was very shrewd. When she would go see her husband, she would smear her body with honey and the king could live by licking it off. When King Bimbisara wasn't dying, King Ajitasattu went to see him and said, Dad, how come you're not dead yet? Oh, when your mother comes to visit, she smears her body with honey and I live by licking it off. End of visits from the queen. But still, King Bimbisara wasn't dying fast enough, so King Ajitasattu had him tortured. And during the torturing, he died. The commentaries say that two messages arrived at the palace at the same time. They gave the first message to King Ajitasattu, which said that a son had been born to him. And for the first time, he knew a father's love for a son. And he said to his men, release my father from prison. And they gave him the second message, which said his father was dead. From that night on, King Ajitasattu had been troubled with terrible nightmares. He would no sooner fall asleep than he would wake up screaming, and his servants would rush in. Great king, great king, are you all right? I'm fine, fine, go away, go away. And he'd fall back to sleep and have another nightmare and wake up screaming. So on this full moon night, King Atisatu has insomnia, and if the king can't sleep, nobody gets to sleep. So everybody's hanging out on the upper terrace of the palace with the insomniac king. And he utters his joyful exclamation about wanting to visit some recluse or Brahmin who can bring some peace to his mind. And one of his ministers pipes up and says, Oh, there's Makali Gosala. He's long gone forth. He's esteemed as holy. He has many followers. You should visit him. Perhaps he can bring some peace to your mind. And then another minister says, There's Peruna Kasapa. And there's each of the ministers champions his own guy. The king says nothing. Finally, the hubbub calms down, and the king turns to Jivaka, who's sitting nearby, and says, Jivaka, do you know any recluse Brahmin we could visit? 
great king, the Buddha, the perfectly enlightened one, is living in my mango grove with a company of 1,250 monks. He teaches a Dhamma which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. You should visit him. Perhaps he can bring some peace to your mind. Prepare the elephant vehicles, Jivaka. So Jivaka goes running down from the upper terrace of the palace down to the stables below and has 500 female elephants saddled up along with the king's royal bull elephant. And then he runs back up to the upper terrace of the palace and he says, the elephant vehicles are prepared, great king, do as you see fit. So King Ajitasatu had 500 women of the court seated one each on the 500 female elephants and he and Jivaka mounted up on the royal tusker and they rode forth in full royal pleasure with torchbearers going before. Must have been quite a sight on that full moon night. They headed out of the new city of Rajgar and then through the old city, out through the city walls, hung a left, and headed towards the mango grove. And when they got near the mango grove, it was quiet. It was a little too quiet. Jivaka, are you betraying me? Are you turning me over to my enemies? No, great king. Why would you think that? You said there was 1,250 people in this mango grove. It's really too quiet. Oh, they're probably all meditating, great king. Look, you can see lights in the pavilion hall. Go forward, great king, go forward. So they went as far as they could go on the elephants, and they dismounted, the king and Jivaka and all the ladies of the court, and they went up to the pavilion hall. And King Ajitasatu sort of wandered around, checking things out. Quite impressed with these 1,250 monks, all sitting quietly, nobody playing with his foot, no one coughing, just all meditating. Eventually he whispers to Jivaka, now which one's the Buddha? He's the one sitting at the back facing everybody else. King Ajatasattu wanders up by the Buddha and says, if only my son the prince could enjoy such peace as this, the Buddha overhears him. He says, Great King, do your thoughts follow your affection? Yes, Venerable Sir, I love my son very much, and it would be wonderful if he could experience peace such as this. And then King Ajitasattu saluted the Buddha, saluted the monks, and sat down at one side. And he said to the Buddha, Venerable Sir, in my kingdom there are people who practice many different crafts. There are elephant trainers, there are horse trainers, there are archers, there are spearmen, there are camp marshals, there are commandos, there are chainmail warriors, there are cooks and bakers, confectioners, there are people who weave cloth, there are garland makers, there are sellers of perfume, there are artisans of all sorts, there are street sweepers, there's barbers. Every one of them practices a craft and it's possible to see from some fruit of their labor here and now. Venerable Sir, can you point out any fruit of the spiritual life that is visible here and now? Great King, have you ever asked this question of any other recluses or Brahmins? Well, yes, actually I have. I've, I've asked a half a dozen recluses and Brahmins the same, the same question, but 
Well, they just preached their doctrine at me. They never really got around to answering the question. It was, it was like asking for a mango and being given a breadfruit. It was most unsatisfying. But I never said anything. I just went away quietly. So I ask you again, Venerable Sir, can you point out any fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Great King, I will ask you a question. Answer as you see fit. Suppose in your kingdom, in your palace, there's a slave who arises before you each morning, waits on you hand and foot, see that all of your needs are met, sees that your food is just as you like it, and doesn't go to bed until after you go to bed. Suppose this slave were to think, it is wonderful, it is marvelous, the destiny of meritorious deeds. This king Ajatasattu is a man, and I am a man, and yet he enjoys the five strands of sense pleasures although he, as though he were a god, while I wait on him hand and foot from morning to night. Perhaps I too should do meritorious deeds. Great king, suppose at some point this slave were to shave off his hair and beard, put on the ochre robes, and go forth to the homeless life. Upon learning of this, would you send your soldiers saying, make that man come back and be a slave and wait on me for all my wishes? Oh no, venerable sir. We would rise up before him. We would prepare a seat for him. We would see to his food, clothing, shelter, and medicinal requirements. We would provide for him righteous protection. Great king, is this not a fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Well, yes it is, venerable sir. Can you point out any other fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Great king, suppose in your kingdom there's a farmer who toils in his fields from morning to night. And when it's harvest time, he has to pay a large portion of his harvest as taxes to support the royal treasury. Suppose this farmer were to grow weary of paying taxes. Suppose he were to think, it is wonderful, it is marvelous, the destiny of meritorious deeds. This king Ajatasattu is a man and I am a man, and yet king Ajatasattu enjoys the five strands of sense pleasures as though he were a god. While I toil in my fields from morning to night, and when it's harvest time I, wait, I wind up paying a large portion of my harvest as taxes to the royal treasury. Perhaps I too should do meritorious deeds. Great king, suppose after some time this farmer were to leave his farm, shave off hair and beard, put on the ochre robes, and go forth to the homeless life. Upon hearing of this, would you send your soldiers saying, make that man come back and be a farmer so he can support the royal treasury? Oh no, venerable sir, we would rise up before him. We would prepare a seat. We would see to his food, clothing, shelter, and medicinal requirements. We would provide for him a righteous protection. Great king, is this not also a fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Yes, venerable sir, indeed it is. Um, venerable sir, can you point out any fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now, but more wondrous and more sublime than these? Listen, great king, and pay attention. A Tathagata arises in this world, a fully enlightened Buddha, who teaches a Dhamma which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. A householder or a householder's child hears the Dhamma and gains faith. 
And at some later point, considers, household life is crowded and dusty. Going forth is free like the air. And this householder or a householder's child leaves the household life, shaves off hair and beard, puts on the ochre robe, and joins the Tathagata's order. Great king, when someone joins the Tathagata's order, they live restrained by the precepts, the rules of behavior. The first of these precepts is, I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. The second precept is, I undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given. We have many of these rules. We're celibate. We tell the truth. We don't use harsh or divisive language. We don't engage in gossip or idle chatter. We don't take intoxicants. We eat only in the first part of the day. We don't indulge in sleep. We don't go to singing, dancing, shows, or adorn ourselves. Many rules, great king. By living restrained by these precepts, it makes it possible to actually guard the senses. Upon seeing a sight, we do not grasp at the signs or secondary characteristics, lest evil, unwholesome states such as covetousness or grief overcome us. Upon hearing a sound, smelling a smell, tasting a taste, touching a texture, or thinking a thought, we do not grasp at the signs or secondary characteristics lest evil, unwholesome states, such as covetousness or grief, overcome us. With senses restrained, it makes it possible to be mindful of all that we do. Mindful when going forward and coming back. Mindful when getting up in the morning and getting dressed. Mindful when going on alms round. Mindful when eating the food, when chewing, tasting, savoring, and swallowing. Mindful when going to the toilet. Mindful when going to sleep and waking up. Mindful when speaking and mindful when keeping silent. We also are content with little. All we need is food, clothing, shelter, or medicine if we're ill. This means that we're free to go wherever we want, like a bird on the wing. Great king, with these noble precepts, with this noble guarding of the senses, with this noble mindfulness of all of our activities, and this noble contentment with little, it makes it possible to practice the holy life. Upon returning from alms round, having eaten the midday meal, one resorts to a secluded dwelling. The forest, the root of a tree, a cave, a charnel ground, a heap of straw. One sits down cross-legged and sets up mindfulness before oneself. Great King, when meditating like this, it's possible that one of five hindering states of mind could arise. The first of these hindrances is the desire for sense pleasures. Sense pleasures are like being in debt. If you're in debt, you must continually work to pay off the debt. It's the same with our desire for sense pleasures. No sense pleasure is ultimately satisfying. When you get one pleasure, you just want to keep it or repeat it or get some more. 
It's like being in debt. But if someone were in debt and were to pay off that debt, they would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome the desire for sense pleasures, even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. The second of these hindrances is ill will and hatred. Ill will and hatred is like being physically ill. If you're physically ill, you don't feel well, you're hot, you can't think straight, and you can't do what you want to do. If you're overcome with ill will or hatred, you don't feel well, you're hot, you can't think straight, and you can't do what you want to do. But if someone were physically ill and were to overcome that illness, they would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, great king, if one can overcome ill will and hatred, even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. The third of these hindrances, great king, is sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor is like being in prison. If someone is in prison, they just sit there doing nothing, missing out on all the good things of life. It's the same with sloth and torpor. You sit there, but you're missing out on the spiritual practice, the spiritual life. But if a prisoner were to gain his freedom, he would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, great king, if one can overcome sloth and torpor, or even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. The fourth of these hindrances, great king, is restlessness and worry. Restlessness and worry is like being a slave. A slave must go there and do that, come here and do this. A slave is always busy, but never doing what the slave wants to do, only what the master commands. It's the same with restlessness and worry. You're all over the place, mentally or physically or both, never actually doing what you really want to do. But if a slave were to gain his freedom, he would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome restlessness and worry, one rejoices and becomes glad. The fifth of these hindrances, great king, is skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt is like being on a perilous desert journey with scarce provisions and where bandits abound. First one thinks to go in this direction, but no, there won't be any water. Then one thinks to go this way, but no, there might be bandits. One does, does more starting and stopping than actual progressing. But if someone on a perilous desert journey were to reach a place of safety, they would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome skeptical doubt, even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. When one sees that these five hindrances are not abandoned, one regards that as being in debt, being physically ill, as being in prison, being a slave, as a desert road. But when one sees that these five hindrances have been abandoned, one regards that as freedom from debt, as good health, Freedom from prison, freedom from slavery as a place of safety. Thus secluded from sense desires, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, one enters and remains in the first jhana, which is with thinking and examining, and is filled with rapture and happiness born of seclusion. One drenches, steeps, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great king, imagine a skilled bath attendant or his apprentice taking a metal basin 
and pouring in soap flakes and then pouring in just the right amount of water and mixing the soap flakes in the metal basin until the soap flakes are totally permeated with water, totally filled with water, totally saturated with water, and you have a ball of soap. In the same way, in the first jhana, one drinks deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great king, this is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, great king, with the subsiding of the thinking and examining, and by gaining inner tranquility and unification of mind, one enters and remains in the second jhana, which contains rapture and happiness born of concentration. One drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration, so there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great king, imagine a lake far up in the mountains where there are no streams coming into it and not even any showers of rain. And yet at the bottom of the lake, there's a spring of cool, clear water. The cool, clear water from that spring would completely permeate the lake, completely fill the lake, so there would be no part of that lake not touched by the cool, clear water. In the same way, in the second jhana, one drenches steep, saturates and suffuses one's body with a rapture and happiness born of concentration, so there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great king, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, great king, with the fading away of rapture, remaining mindful, imperturbable, and clearly aware, one enters and remains in the, sec- the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare, happy is one who is mindful and equanimous. One drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with a happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's body not filled with happiness. Great king, imagine a lotus pond where there are lotuses that come up out of the mud but don't come above the surface of the water. They lead their whole lives underwater, filled from their tips to their roots with the water. In the same way, In the third jhana, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with a a happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's body not filled with happiness. Great king, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, great king, with the fading away of pleasure and pain, as with the previous passing of joy and sorrow, One enters and remains in the fourth jhana, a state beyond pleasure and pain that contains mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. One sits suffusing one's body with the pure bright mind so there is no part of one's body not suffused by the pure bright mind. Great king, imagine a man covered from the head down by a white cloth so there is no part of his body not suffused by the white cloth. In the same way, in the fourth jhana, one sits suffusing one's body with the pure bright mind, so there is no part of one's body not suffused by the pure bright mind. Great king, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. 
Then, with a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and attained to imperturbability, one directs and inclines it to knowing and seeing. One understands thus, this is my body, made of material form, composed of the four great elements, born of mother and father, fed on rice and gruel, impermanent, subject to rubbing and pressing, to dissolution and dispersion. And this is my consciousness, which is bound up with it and supported by it. Great King, insights like this into the nature of reality are also fruits of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, Great King, with a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and attained to imperturbability, one can incline and direct one's mind to the various supernormal powers. Being one, one can become many. Being many, one can become one. One can travel great distances instantaneously. One can walk on water as though it is earth. One can dive into the earth as though it is water. One can pass through walls and ramparts unimpeded. One can know the minds of others. One can hear sounds at a great distance. One can remember one's past lives. One can see beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. Great King, supernormal powers such as these are also fruits of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, Great King, with a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, one can incline and direct it to the ending of the asavas, the ending of the intoxicants. One can understand this is dukkha, this is the origin of dukkha, this is the cessation of dukkha, and this is a path of practice leading to the cessation of dukkha. One can understand these are the intoxicants, this is the origin of the intoxicants, the cessation of the intoxicants, and the path of practice leading to the cessation of the intoxicants. And one can follow this path all the way to the end and make an end to the intoxicant of sense pleasures, the intoxicant of becoming, the intoxicant of ignorance. And having done so, one puts a total end to all dukkha. Great King, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. And furthermore, great king, there is no fruit of the spiritual life more wondrous and more sublime than this. The king was impressed. <laughs> Wonderful, marvelous. It's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like pointing out the way to one who is lost. It's like setting up right something that's been knocked over. It's like bringing a light into a room so that those who have eyes can see. I go for refuge to the Buddha and to the Dhamma and to the Bhikkhu Sangha. May the Buddha please consider me a lay follower from this day forth. And then King Ajatasattu got all shamefaced and finally blurted out, A transgression overcame me. I was so unskillful, so deluded that for the sake of rulership I killed my father, a righteous man and a righteous king. Great King, it is good that you acknowledge this transgression. 
For indeed, it was a transgression to kill your father, a righteous man and a righteous king. But your acknowledgement of it will be for your restraint in the future. And then King Ajatasattu said, We have many things to do. We must be going. Do as you see fit, great king. So King Ajatasattu saluted the Buddha, saluted the monks, circumambulated the Buddha, and then keeping the Buddha on his right, he went back to where the elephants were parked, he and Jivaka and all the members of the court, and they mounted up and rode away. And not long after the king had left, the Buddha said to the monks, this king has ruined himself. This king has destroyed himself. If he had not killed his father, a righteous man and a righteous king, then the stainless eye of Dhamma would have opened in him tonight and he would have attained the first level of awakening. But this king has ruined himself. This king has destroyed himself. And the monks were very pleased with all that the Buddha taught. Now the sutta ends here, but the commentaries say, go on to say that King Ajitasattu went back and had his first good night's sleep since his father died. And he did become a great protector of the Dhamma. The first council of Arhants, held three months after the Buddha's death, was held just outside the city of Rajgar. Obviously the Arhants felt this was a very supportive place. But King Ajitasattu was very ambitious. After the Buddha's death, he set out on wars of conquest and conquered all of the neighboring kingdoms and built the nucleus of the first great Indian empire. But not all went well for King Ajitasattu. You see, his son killed him. <laughs> and his grandson killed his son, and his great-grandson killed his grandson, and the great-great-grandson killed the great-grandson. And at that point, the people of Magadha said, enough of these father killers. They killed the last of the line and established a new dynasty. <laughs> so, we have a couple of minutes for questions, if anybody has any. Beautiful. Yes. I do. Well, I'm just copping from the Buddha. He's the one who did the beautiful. Brilliant sutta. I mean, the teaching is... Yeah, the whole path right there. Morality, concentration, wisdom. Overcome those intoxicants. You know, one time we actually did that. I was teaching a retreat and there was a spot to build a campfire and so someone did and we did exactly that. What was it that the king said or did that led the Buddha to, to conclude that he had not received the Dhamma. He was able to tell that the king was really ambitious. Traditionally at that time, there were five heinous crimes that sort of punched your ticket to hell. All right? Killing your mother, killing your father, attempting to kill a Buddha, uh, killing an Arhant, or creating a schism in the Sangha. All right? So since... Poor King Ajatasattu had killed his father. Traditionally, he's headed to hell. And if, if he had gotten the stainless eye of Dhamma, he would have become a stream enterer, guaranteed not to go to hell. So there's the traditional answer. The answer I would give is the Buddha was pretty shrewd and he realized that somebody who had so much ambition that he would kill his father 
was not interested in the spiritual life, but is interested in conquest. And so I would say the Buddha realized that based on the fact that he was so into power that he, he killed his father, that, yeah, the stainless eye of Dhamma was not going to open. Well, the reason I was asking the question was from more of the Christian tradition of, you know, bad confession, confessing right. something, bringing salvation. And I was wondering how the two traditions deal with that phenomenon. Yeah, very definitely in the Buddhist tradition, that same sort of confession, salvation is available, but you've got to change your behavior too. I mean... King, King Adjisasatu didn't go around killing his father anymore, but he did set out on wars of conquest. There's the story of Angulimala, a serial killer who converted, you know, renounced what he was doing and became an arhat. So there is this salvation if you'll clean up your behavior. You can't just say, okay, I'm sorry I did that. You've got to actually change if you really want to make a difference. Well, looking at the clock, Mickey's big hand is pointing in a direction. We have photographs of everything that's being auctioned off, separated into categories here in the back. If anyone would like to look at the stuff, we're starting prices and the value of the, of the goods. All right. So check out the photographs. It's very cool stuff. Okay, and I have one other announcement. There's a Donna basket out there that says to make the checks out to me. Do not make the checks out to me. Make the checks out to Insight Retreat Center. You'll get a far greater return on your investment, and it's tax deductible. So this is my donation to the center, and please be generous. Support yourself. So thank you. <laughs>